This is the Registry Podcast. Welcome to the Real Perspectives Podcast. I'm your host, Vladimir Posanets, the co-founder and publisher of the Registry. In this podcast, we dive deep into the world of commercial real estate and explore unique insights from industry professionals. Today, we're thrilled to host Brendan Mason and Noah Pakras, the dynamic duo behind Altabird Investments. With their razor-sharp insights and passion for the market, Brendan and Noah have been instrumental in redefining investment strategies and development in the industrial commercial real estate sector. Join us as we unpack their journey, learn from their successes, and gather unparalleled wisdom from two very bright minds in the industrial investment landscape today. Let's get started. Noah, Brendan, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Doing well. How are you, Vlad? Doing well. Doing well. Where do we find you, gentlemen? Where are you today? I'm, I'm sitting at my home office in, uh, in Orange County, California at the moment. It's a beautiful sunny day outside. And I'm in Tacoma, Washington. Well, gentlemen, thank you both for uh, uh, you know joining the conversation here. Uh, look forward to you know learning about the firm, obviously, and what you guys are up to. Um, as we kind of kick it off by way of introduction, do you mind telling us a little bit about you know you and sort of your background in the in the industry, um, how you guys met, and um, you know how um, how it all started? Yeah, no, I'd be happy to. So this is Brendan. Uh, so. Uh, I originally, uh, back in college, got the development bug uh, when a speaker came into uh, the University of Puget Sound, a gentleman who had uh, also started a, a small two-person development company. And so uh, starting in my senior year of college, that became my, my focus of what it was that I, I wanted to do with my career. And so after graduating, uh, I worked in construction management for a time and also did brokerage. And uh, I broke into development uh, back in 2014 and spent four years working uh, for a group that was uh, developing a master planned community in Gig Harbor, Washington. It was 330 acres and basically had all of the food groups, uh, which was really good uh, proving ground and learning opportunity for me because we're working on this project that the company had started over 25 years before, but I was getting the opportunity to finish it out. And it had multifamily, single family, parks, retail, uh, kind of everything. And uh, at that same time, I was uh, working on my master's at the University of Washington, have a master's of science in real estate, uh, graduated in 2017. And after finishing up with uh, Olympic Property Group, uh, made the transition over to Panatoni Development Company in 2018 as a development manager for them. And while I was at Panatoni, uh, they had me uh, working on projects in the Seattle market, but my primary focus was being their market leader in uh, Portland, Oregon. And so managed the Portland market for them for three and a half years. And while working at Panatoni, I met Noah and Noah handled all of the finances on uh, my projects as well as a number of others. And I'll let him give you a description of what he was working on at Panatoni. But 
uh, we developed both a great working relationship as well as a, a good friendship. And uh, next thing we knew, we were figuring out how to go out on our own. Yeah. So I'll let Noah tell you about his his background. Yeah. And this is Noah. Um, my background was more institutional, big companies, a little bit of mortgage banking for a while, real estate investments. As Brendan mentioned, uh, joined Panatoni a few years before he did, uh, kind of an extension of what I was doing at those big institutions, capitalization, finance, things like that. Um, and, you know, partnering with the, the local offices and getting hooked up with the Seattle office and then meeting Brendan when he joined Panatoni. So as Brendan mentioned, all of his projects, he and I partnered together. So we were already basically doing a dry run of what AltaBird would ultimately become, you know, working on the projects in the Portland market that Brendan was working on. And, you know, I was I was getting the the debt and the equity for the for the deals, making sure you know, every bills were getting paid and people were staying happy because their paychecks were coming in on time. So that was that was my role, not not involved on the nitty gritty development side. Um, but with my background in the institutional side, you know, always being like a small cog in a larger machine. Um, the idea of like, can two guys really go off and do this was scary to me. Brendan was always a lot more uh, full of confidence. And then, you know, as we just got further and further down that path, discussed it more. And when we actually started writing checks to, you know, pursue that first deal, you know, I was, I mean, I remember there were nights where I was just literally like sweating on the phone and thinking like, wow, we're actually doing this. And it was a big deal for me. Um, getting a little more comfortable through time as you get, get into it a bit more, but it's still, you know, being on your own and knowing that like, you know, the next, you know, meal kind of relies on the business that Brendan and I can drum up. It's, uh, it, it's a little intimidating at times, but um, I'm very happy with the jump that we made. That's, uh, uh, you know, very interesting that you bring that up, uh, Noah, because as an entrepreneur, that is certainly something that I think, you know, in school, when people talk about entrepreneurship, they talk about, you know, finance and this and raising money and all this other stuff. But it, but it's really that, um, you know, gut reaction to being on your own and sort of, you know, eating what you kill um, is uh, is something that's, you know, hard to, I think, teach um, unless you unless you go through it. Now, interestingly enough, you guys started the company in June of 2021. Is that is that correct? So that's sort of probably um, added to some of the stress given where the world was a couple of years ago. Uh, tell us about that and kind of, you know, why that timing and what, what made it so that you guys saw that this was a you know good opportunity to kickstart this venture. I would say that uh, timing wise, it, it came down partially to me getting a bonus at Panatoni. Um, thanks, guys. <laughs> okay. um, but uh, you know, there's never necessarily a perfect time to to start a company, as much as it's just being willing to get out there and do it. And I was ready to go, and I think Noah was as well. And so, uh, I would say it was certainly interesting in the fact that things were extremely hot in 2021 uh, on the industrial side. Uh, you're watching land values go through the roof, construction pricing. You, know, you would get uh, pricing from a contractor and ask him 
four weeks later and the price was up another 5%. Yeah, you just, you had no idea what was going to happen um, on that front. But at the same time, maybe that made it a, a bit scary to step out, but also values were going up. So that seemed like a, a good opportunity as well. So uh, I think we are fortunate in the fact that we landed our first deal and we were able to uh, do that as a forward uh, sale uh, with the, the group that we developed it for. Uh, Timing-wise, that worked out really well, but then we didn't get stuck holding the bag on, on any other projects as well as the market started to shift uh, dramatically in early 2022. So that was a benefit for us. The project that we are, are starting or that we've started in Oregon, uh, we were able to get that at a great land basis. And if you can get something at a great land basis, then uh, that solves a lot of your problems um, in a shifting market like the one that we're in. Just at a high high level, um, there really what I've realized from it is there is no perfect time. So so you're right, Vlad, that it was a difficult time in some respects. And then sometimes I look back and it's like, well, would it have been better to have started earlier? Like you know, theoretically, we can't change when we started the discussions in the company, but that would have had you know a whole set of other issues where there were just no sites available. The market was so hot that every developer was snapping up every site available. So we kind of came in at this time where thankfully, you know, in hindsight, it was the market was hot enough to where we can find equity and, and you know, the right capitalization structure to even get a deal going as a new group. Um, but there were there were definitely some stressful moments getting getting that deal put together. As you started a company, did you consider a certain, you know, size of project? Did you consider kind of, you know, what your maybe signature uh, type offering might be? I I'm sure you did. So I'm just kind of, you know, curious what, what you thought was, um, was the area that uh, you wanted to focus on. Yeah, actually, I, looking back on it, it's kind of funny now because the original thesis uh, was developed during my time at Panatoni at networking events. I would have smaller sized uh, institutional capital groups come up and say, hey, you work at Panatonia. I've been trying to get a deal with them for years. You know, what do I got to do? And I would say, hey, you know, we, we have our, our, our group of investors that we go to. I'm really sorry, you know, just keep on working on it. And so my initial thesis was, oh, you know, we'll go smaller. We'll, we'll go to that mid-tier level of institutional capital partner. We'll do projects that are somewhere between two and five acres. And once we went out and started looking at the deals that were smaller, uh, the feedback we started getting from the institutional groups that we talked to were, well, that project's too small. And so in a roundabout way, the original thesis was wrong. And I'm happy to admit that. And uh, we've really found that our, our sweet spot is uh, a larger project somewhere between 125 to say 350,000 square feet. Uh, it's a good size range for us. We get great economies of scale in respects to the construction cost. And also for better or for worse, it's what we were taught at Panatoni. That was the size range that I was developing for them. And it's what we know really well. So we've looked at smaller deals. And I think that as the company grows, those will start to become uh, strategic plays for us, but we're, we're still very much in the sweet spot of 100,000 to 350,000 square feet. And I would just add that um, I don't think you were wrong, Brendan. 
I think that it was a different model. And that's what we're kind of learning as we've broken off too, is that at our previous employer, Panatoni, they did it a certain way. That's what we learned. And we're starting to see that actually other groups have solved the problem differently, the way that they capitalize deal, the, the projects they go after. Of course, you know, the larger projects are going to, you know, feed, feed a larger overhead with more profit and fees built in. A small group like us, we, we could potentially figure out, you know, a smaller deal. But like Brendan was saying, going to the institutional capital groups that we're just comfortable with and know, they're not looking for those small groups. So we're kind of just a product of the groups that we know and what they're looking for. And maybe one day that changes as, you know, Brendan and I, you know, maybe build up a war chest and do some deals for ourselves or friends and family. Um, we can delve into like the smaller deals, but, um, you know, also what Brendan was touching on the cost, the, the cost for those smaller deals have, like, if you look at the curve of doing even from going from 125,000 square feet to 75,000 square feet, the per square foot cost of that is it's almost like a straight, like up line on that curve. Like it just, the cost goes up like exponentially. So it's just hard to figure out right now. And that's a product of inflation and interest rate increases and costs and all that stuff we're seeing today. And the company primarily today is focused on merchant building. Is that, is that correct? That's yep. That's correct. So far the model is merchant build, get the capital back in the company, deploy it on hopefully, you know, growing the number of deals we can do at a time, knowing that we're just capped. That's also something else Brendan and I have talked about with the two people wanting to keep it this way. We, we hire, you know, contractors for everything else, outsource everything, but he and I having the two critical roles within a company, uh, Brendan being the development expert, me being the finance capital markets between those two guys internally, we can handle maximum six deals. So we're still building a pipeline to even get to that point. Now it's just the the availability of good sites. But once we get to that point, it's merchant build, merchant build, merchant build until we get enough kind of capital built up. So maybe we hold and maybe we do those friends and family hold deals. But so far it's merchant build. Yeah. To an extent that that comes to that point about leaving out in 2021. If we had started in 2019, we easily would have had a a pipeline of, of six projects. There was enough land available. Um, and now where we're at, we're waiting for land sellers to wake up to the fact that their land is not worth what it was uh, at the end of 2021. And we're starting to see that. And so we are starting to see uh, land sites uh, loosen and shake out. But uh, for the last eight to 12 months, there was not a lot that was out there at least not with reasonable pricing. In terms of geography, so uh, uh, you know, Noah, you're in Southern California. Brendan, you're in the Pacific Northwest. Is your market effectively you know, everything in between? Uh, I would say our market is primarily the Seattle and the Portland markets, uh, the markets that uh, I ran with while I was working at Panatoni. That's where our relationships with uh, the brokerage community and the consulting communities are the strongest. And then in a very roundabout way, our very first project ended up being in Savannah, Georgia. Uh, <laughs> okay. I went out to visit a friend. It was not what we were planning on doing, but uh, I went to visit a friend who had moved out there. And while spending a week there, saw just tilt building after tilt building as I was driving around in the Savannah community. 
and started to dig into it. And I called up Noah and I said, I know this sounds like a long shot and probably doesn't maybe make a lot of sense right now, but there's something going on in Savannah and I think we should be a part of it. And so my contact down there, uh, he made a couple of connections for us. I mean, typically I would never recommend to anybody to go cold into a market. And so having a friend who was already developing there who could make the right introductions for us made all the difference in the world. And so we got connected with a great engineering group that then connected us to a great brokerage team. And then the rest was history. So uh, we just completed 281,000 square feet uh, in the Richmond Hill community, like about 25 minutes south of the uh, Port of Savannah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that takes me to my next question, which is, um, what are some notable projects? You know, some things that you want to highlight, maybe some things that, um, you know, in many ways were important milestones for the organization. Yeah, so, so far, um, as Brendan mentioned, the 281,000 square foot building in Savannah, that's our first fully completed project. We got that under, under contract due diligence, design, entitlements, found the capital, built it. It's actually fully leased. So, you know, the ownership group there has 100% leased building. We're exiting it now and, you know, going to wipe our hands of it here probably by the end of the month. So seeing the full cycle of a building, showing each other and our family members and friends and capital partners, hey, we can actually go out there and do this. I mean, so far, that's that's the best story possible. And then parlaying that into, we just broke ground on our second project, which is Meadowlark Industrial Center. It's in Cornelius, Oregon, which is uh, west of Portland, about 20, 25 minutes west of Portland. Uh, 155,000 square feet there in a single building. And you know we're working with an institutional equity partner on that deal. And I think that the Savannah deal was a, a big reason as to why we were even able to land that group showing, hey, we, we we can do this. We have a track record you know, from our previous employer using that name, using what we've already been able to do on our own, really gave us that momentum to go into it. Um, and just, I guess, part of the, the going back to Brendan about talking about the thesis, what I always, I, I think about this project often, or actually what ended up not becoming a project, what killed that thesis that Brendan was talking about that we spent a little bit of money on, but learned early on, there was a small site in Portland, five acres. We had planned a 78,000 square foot building on. Through our due diligence, there was an environmental issue. We quickly got our arms around it and saw how expensive that issue would be. Um, and you know, when you average that cost over such a small site, realized, I mean, to Brendan's point, that's why we don't do small deals. We just saw any little issue that pops up and these deals just don't work anymore. So that really, that changed the trajectory of our company to, to get more comfortable. I mean, thinking in hindsight, even now, as I'm talking through it, like probably why it was even more comfortable looking at the 281,000 square feet in Savannah, because we just had that bad experience on a small deal thinking like, oh, well, this is larger. It can handle, you know, any little blips that pop up, hopefully not any major issues, but it showed, showed me that, um, that probably is the range that Brendan just discussed where we should be playing. Interesting. Um, as you um, 
you know, now have, uh, you know, a few years under your belt, obviously working for, for others and for yourself. Um, I think when you came into the market with your own company, the industrial space was absolutely on fire. I think in many ways and it continues to be so um, uh, to this day. Um, how would you guys characterize sort of the, the state of the uh, industrial market today? Uh, so for me, I would say that we're actually in a, I think we're in a better place than where we were uh, at the, the height of, of the market in 2021, early 2022. Uh, we couldn't continue on in a space where construction pricing was going up to 5% on a monthly basis. Uh, the number that still blows me away is uh, while I was working for Panatoni, I was tying up a lot of land for them in the Clark County, Vancouver market at roughly four to six dollars a square foot and in late 2021 we had brokers calling us up and saying do you want this piece of land and i'm, I'm talking like literally adjacent to something that i had tied up for to pan for panatoni uh you could get this under contract for 25 dollars a square foot and that just doesn't make sense those those numbers uh <laughs> aren't going to make sense in the long term you're right. only going to have cap rate compression for so long so I would say that I think we're getting back to a more stable place in the market, something that is fundamentally uh, something that can be more long term. And I'm, I'm grateful. I, I think that what the Fed has done in respects to raising interest rates has led to a slowdown of what was a, a red hot market that was not sustainable. So uh, I think we're still very bullish on where the market is going. And the other thing that has been a focus for us is we've watched a lot of groups go further out along the I-5 corridor from your urban centers, uh, looking for that cheap land with this idea that somebody was going to show up, which I think was true in late 2021. Uh, but uh, for us, our focus is on trying to find the best opportunity possible as close to the urban core as we can get. And I think that's, you know, we're back to a situation where location, location, location is really, really important. Yeah. And in, in the near term, you know, this is just Noah's thoughts on it, but um, it's there's going to be some pain. We're seeing even in the markets that we play in that lots of space and, you know, lots is a relative term, but um, there is space that's coming to market, sub sublease space. So a lot of those um, spaces that were just so hard to get and hard to find, you know, two years ago, because everything was getting pre-leased or leased early on, or any available space was getting heavily marketed and, you know, six to seven to 10 groups were competing on leasing it. Now, a lot of those groups realize, you know, COVID, at least that, you know, rush and, you know, overstocking your inventory. I mean, these are the same stories everyone's hearing, you know, reading on CNN or Wall Street Journal and those sorts of things, just general business. But um, they're they're realizing they don't need that much space, at least not currently. So there's going to be some pain in the near term, but long term, the demand for industrial space is only going to grow. A lot of these things, you know, with population growth, with the concentration density, things like that, and especially in the areas that we're currently, you know, active. Uh, we think long term, it's it's still going to be a good play. There's been um, 
a bit of a kind of an interesting shift over the last few years in terms of you know how industrial is being used as well. So e-commerce is obviously the obvious one. We don't need to go into a lot of detail about how that's transformed the um, industrial space, but um, there's been some light manufacturing, which also is kind of an obvious one. Um, but then I would add, uh, you know, life science conversion, which has been kind of an interesting one, including uh, things like, you know, mission critical stuff like, you know, data centers and things like that. Um, the product that you guys manufacture in the size, um, does it allow for that kind of flexibility or are some of those, um, you know, properties so specific that you would have to be sort of a, you know, uh, an, an, an educated builder in that in that space? So I would say that for our our size range, we're in a good sweet spot for a group that's looking to have their own space, not necessarily sharing uh, along with another group. Uh, our, our project in uh, Savannah was leased up by uh, uh, 3PL. They took the entire space and then and that's a 281,000 square feet. And then at 155,000 square feet in Cornelius, I think we're well positioned for a one or two tenant uh, occupancy there as well. And it's not on that large scale where a group goes, ah, that's too much for us to take it down. Whereas uh, being able to, if you're a manufacturing group, you getting to control your whole site and not worry about who your next door neighbor is, I think is a real advantage. Uh, I did a manufacturing project in Ridgefield, uh, Washington, which is just north of Vancouver in Portland, about 25 minutes. Uh, I was 117,000 square feet, and they took that full space down as well. So I think the size that we're in is is very flexible in respects to it can do uh, your distribution. It can also do the manufacturing space. Uh, this one that we're doing in Cornelius, uh we had some initial uh, interest from some tech groups for potentially data centers, but we didn't have the larger uh, power infrastructure that was there for for that type of a user. But it's also the reason that we're why we're in Cornelius is you have a large number of data centers that are in Hillsboro, and we expect that uh, as an auxiliary provider for space for those services, uh, there's a number of uh, distribution groups that they supply the products for those data centers and we're right next door. So um, AI is, I think, going to be uh, a big driver in terms of space that data centers are going to need more and more of, which just means you're going to need more distribution space to help provide them the, the services that they need. And we had, we had looked into our, I, I wouldn't even say looked into, we have discussed you know, do we go to some of those more, quote unquote, alternative industrial uses like data centers? Um, do we want to go up that learning curve to possibly do something like that? Because we do see the opportunity like around the country for various reasons. Um, we haven't yet really taken that much further. Um, and then also what Brendan was touching on specifically where we are, it was, the data centers that exist in Hillsborough was actually a benefit to us, not just being close to them with the service providers that we think are going to end up potentially leasing our building, but they've just gobbled up so much of the industrial land in that area that we're one of the few true like logistics building that's going up. So all these guys need someone like that to just store stuff. So 
in in some respects, it's helped us. And um, you know, the issue being also what Brandon touched on the power. So the power side of things can be an issue where you know these data centers need massive amounts, like megawatts of power, like collectively. Where you know, if we just need our three thousand amps, you need to make sure early on that that's available for you because you just don't know. Even though it looks like a rural area, that power could be diverted elsewhere. But you know, those are the things that you find out pretty early on in the process of your due diligence for a site. And one of the things that we're doing, uh, we're putting more power into our buildings initially than what we would have been uh, taught to do at Panatoni. On 155,000 square feet a couple of years ago, we would have put 1,200 amps in there. And now we're uh, well over double at 3,000 amps for 155,000 square feet because we right, want to be able right. to handle the manufacturing group that shows up and says, we want to take the whole space and we're going to need enough power to be able to run our equipment. So. Uh, that that's been a strategy change uh, that that we're seeing a lot of groups doing as well. As you canvass sort of the industry, you know, are, are are there any you know you know stories about the the you know industrial space that maybe are you know are not in the news? Maybe some things that you guys are seeing that are obvious to you, but um, you know perhaps uh, not highlighted enough that you think should be note noteworthy. Um. I would say one of the things that we've really benefited from is both developing on the West Coast and in the Southeast. Uh, it's helped provide a lot of perspective. I think it's really easy if you're only working in one market. I think back, you know, just a couple of years ago, while at Panatoni, I was only focused on the Seattle and the Portland markets. And to an extent, those markets are pretty similar and you could almost say they're one. Um, being in the Savannah market has given me a lot of perspective. Uh, we're so land constrained up in the Seattle and Portland market, it makes it a big challenge to be able to put larger sites together. But at the same time, if you can get your sites, uh, you're in a really strong position because of that higher uh, barrier to entry. Whereas looking at the Savannah market, I have a lot of concern about the Savannah market right now. I was out there uh, back in May to uh, finish up the substantial completion of our building down there and driving around the market, they have nothing that is holding them back in terms of land opportunities. And so there's 21 million plus square feet that is under construction and under development. And whereas we saw <laughs> no, this has changed in the last six to eight weeks. So uh, in the entire time we've been in Savannah, I've gotten almost no flyers that said, hey, this building is finished and we have any space available because everything was getting leased before. Uh, now I'm getting weekly hits from the multiple brokers that are in Savannah saying, we have 400,000 square feet, the building is finished and come on and lease it. Um, you're still not seeing that in the Seattle and the Portland market, although we're starting to see sublease space showing up in, in Seattle and Portland. Um, some projects are getting put on the shelf um, in the Seattle and the Portland market uh, as well. And so I don't think that's something that we're necessarily hearing a lot of um, within the news, uh, but us being closer to it, we know what our competition has tied up and what they said they were gonna start construction on five months ago, six months ago, and those sites haven't seen a shovel yet. So there's certainly been a slowdown in respects to what projects have uh, started and are moving forward. 
And in your opinion, what is slowing some of that some of that demand? Um, is it caused by some of these macroeconomic forces? Are there you know other sort of uh, issues? Is it just too much supply at this point? Everybody was hoping to you know lease stuff to Amazon at, at one time or another. Yeah, I, I think um, like like anything, it's complicated, multiple factors. I think for a period of time. The market was so hot, cap rates were so low, and groups were like out there just leasing space, thinking one day we'll need it, that that really sped up and accelerated and probably for a period of time overbuilt. I think a lot of that got absorbed and is continuing to get absorbed, but um, I think it was just a lot to hit the market and and you know, the theme of what we're what we've been talking about through the podcast with the sublease space coming back. Groups are realizing that, hey, I bit off more that I can chew. So there's there's that going on. And then, you know, the you know, the other piece to that is exactly what you're saying, Vlad, which is the macroeconomic factors. The rising interest rates has hugely impacted, you know, this the, obviously, you know, the cap rates are tied to interest rates. So, you know, buildings, lease buildings, empty buildings, wh- whatever is selling land, it's not selling for what it used to because all of us developers have a model and we need to have profit at the end of that model. And that profit assumes a cap rate that keeps on going up. And then even after that, like some of your other factors that get built into that are, well, your cost of capital and debt, which continues to go up. So every bill and, and on top of that, which is not really as much interest um, rate related, but just, um, you know, inflation related, the actual cost for construction, there's a little feedback loop there too. So everything is just getting more expensive and you're not making as much on the end of the day, at the end of the day, relatively speaking with cap rates going up. So when when we were looking at sites, say two years ago at our previous employer, basically if it's zoned industrial, it worked. Like the cap rates were so low that there was some level of profit to be made. You can get capital excited about it and that would become a deal. Now, you, we're, we're getting fed, you know, 10 land sites a month, you know, call it on average. And of those 10 sites, maybe one or two are even interesting to dig into and you start digging into it. And maybe one is even interesting enough to put some real dollars into. So it is the macroeconomic factors. It is, you know, you've got to be a little more selective about it. And like Brendan said, with the industry slowing down, the positive of all that is at least we have the time now to be selective. Whereas also going back two years, the, the negative of two years ago was a broker sends you a site, you're putting an offer in immediately because your competitor is going to if you don't. Now you at least have a little bit of time to start digging in. But um, ultimately, it's it, you have to be more selective, profits down, and all those factors are, are playing a piece in that. And I would just add one more thing uh, real quickly, uh, and we haven't chatted about it, but the Amazon effect uh, was dramatic in in 2020, uh, sometime around July, August of that year. Amazon started gobbling up every opportunity they could possibly find. If you had a development site uh, and they knew you, they call you up. So, like a Panatoni or a Bridge, they said, "Hey, we want your we want your building." And so everybody else was trying to play catch up, and so. If you had anything uh, because of Amazon gobbling up everything, uh, it meant that your project was going to 
uh, be picked up by somebody else. But now with Amazon slowing down uh, their own march of progress, uh, I think that has also had a dramatic effect as well on the rest of the industry. Have you guys noticed, uh, I mean, obviously construction costs have been, um, you know, up and to the right sort of since uh, 2020. Um, have you noticed that to be a hurdle? Have you also noticed, uh, you know, pushback on some development, uh, you know, based on, you know, proximity to housing, um, you know, land use kind of issues? Um, are, are, are those concerns for, for you or for the industry? Uh, on the construction side, I'd say that we're in a much better place than we were in 2021, 2022. Uh, it's not to say that it's not going up, but it, it's seemed to have leveled off uh, significantly. A, a contractor can give you a price and four months later, they can tell you it's still good. Um, it might be more than it was a year before, but at least uh, you're not getting a situation where you're up five or 10% only a month later, which is what was happening. Uh, so that was a hard, hard space to be developing in. And then in respects to the community aspect of it, uh, we've seen moratoriums get put in place, or we've had, uh, communities decide to change their zoning up to try to, I guess, push for more manufacturing. I think that there's a disconnect in terms of the public discourse about what we're doing as a speculative developer and how that is going to land a potential tenant. Um, I would say, so a, a good example is the city of Ridgefield. Uh, we developed 117,000 square feet while we were at Panatoni, but we developed 117,000 square feet. It was a speculative project and we ended up getting uh, a great manufacturing group to come in over 115 jobs plus in that space. Immediately after we finished, the city council decided to go out and say, we're no longer going to allow distribution. We, we want to make sure that we're only getting manufacturing jobs. So they changed the, the zoning. Well, they killed their own development. They had one or two projects that were already in the process of being built. Those have been completed, but no other new projects have come out in Richfield because no developer is willing to take on the risk of saying, well, I only have 30% of the market who could potentially rent my building. Now, does it mean that that's the only thing they're going to get? No, but you need to give a developer the flexibility of having the opportunity. If I'm going to invest sure. 20 to $30 million in a, in a project, I need to know that I can cast the widest net possible. And oftentimes you end up with the manufacturing group that you were hoping to get. But if you're going to, uh, handcuff us, then you're not going to get anything. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out over the next couple of years. And my guess is that eventually the communities are going to recognize that the investment that they were getting isn't happening anymore. And uh, I would expect that those regulations and that zoning changes that they've made are going to start loosening up. But it's going to take time. It'll probably take three or four years before they quote unquote wake up to that. Do you have anything else, Noah? I, I would just add, no, nothing related to what you just said, which I totally agree with. And then on the micro level, you know, you and I have looked at sites that, you know, you look on the, the aerials that the broker sends you, it's bordering a neighborhood. 
And you and I have had long discussions about, you know, is it worth even pursuing this site, putting money into it, knowing that if there's any level of public process to it, you're going to get pushback. You don't know what that pushback is going to be, how strong that group is going to mobilize. And, you know, ultimately, we think we're adding a benefit to the community. We're, you know, creating something that's creating tax revenue for the community. But I also get, you know, people not wanting a logistics building and trucks going next to where they live. So I can see it from both sides. But, um, you know, it's something that Brendan and I usually pass on those opportunities unless, you know, we can design something that, um, you know, is totally within the zoning and doesn't have to go through a public process. Or, you know, even other sites we've looked at, which, you know, we haven't developed one just yet, but we've tried to, you know, kind of bridge the gap and come up with creative solutions before you even have that um, public pushback, which is, you know, there was a site we were looking at in the Portland market where we were talking about building, you know, a 20 foot wall that um, basically totally separates it has some kind of like greenery, like, you know, mature trees on the other side. So it still looks beautiful and, you know, it's zoned industrial. So the city already had the plan to create it that way. Now it's just making sure that the neighborhood is happy with the end product. So we haven't yet done that, but it's definitely something we've discussed many a times. Yeah, that is that is very interesting. Um, as we close our conversation, I like to you know usually end it with a couple of you know personal questions, if if that's okay. One of the things that I would love to ask you know you gentlemen, given that your company is still you know fairly new, um, I think some of the emotions around that are uh, fresh and raw, perhaps in some ways, <laughs> some examples. Um, would love to hear from you. You know, advice you would give to somebody trying to enter this business. Um, I'm not going to ask you about things you would do differently, but maybe you know, maybe some advice to like your younger self. You know, uh, you know, if if you were kind of you know going through this process and trying to you know consider how to start a venture on your on your own in this space. You want to go first, Noah? Yeah, yeah. This is Noah. I'll go first. Um, I would say for me, at least off the top of my head, it's um, it's two things that I continue to work on. Brendan, one of them, Brendan has really like been the guide for me. So that would be patience. Uh, you know, like I talked about earlier, my work history has been large institutions, never a shortage of work. So always go, go, go. Um, in a small company like this, there are periods of time when there's a closing coming up or, you know, some other big activity. You know, there are some long days where it feels like they're not going to end, but there are also long stretches of time where I check my email box and there's nothing and, um, you know, or or maybe there is something, but it's it's something that we don't even need to look at for another month, let alone respond to. And which is that that feeling is new for me. I'm so used to being busy for the sake of being busy that um I would tell my prior self, hey, learn learn to be patient and kind of embrace it. Like, don't be worried that like, what am I missing? Just enjoy the fact that you're not overly busy, which has been kind of my life and career up to this point. Um, and uh, and then, um, oh, so that was patience. I was I forgot the other one. So Brendan, go for it. I'll, I'll think about it while you're talking. I would say that it's been great. I've had the opportunity to start a real estate club at the University of Puget Sound, which was my alma mater. Uh, and that's given me an opportunity to help give advice to 
people that were in my position so many years ago in terms of how to enter this industry. But I think the most important things in terms of, especially if you're in a position like Noah and I, so Noah and I don't come from uh, wealthy backgrounds and kind of what my recognition was to be able to get into the position that we're in was I needed to have the experience of learning from uh, a group that really understood it well. And I got a lot of rep reps uh, in, in terms of uh, the process. And so Panatoni was an amazing learning ground for both of us. And I owe those guys a great deal of, of debt and gratitude because uh, they made our career. Uh, it's so hard to go out there without a track record and be able to get the type of traction that we've gotten in a very short period of time. And because we worked at Panatoni, that is typically the end of the conversation uh, in respects to what is your, your background and what is your resume. And so I've seen some other people, um, other young individuals, entrepreneurs try to just break out on their own and my hat's off to them. You know, it's, it's, you got to start at some point in time, but if you haven't had the experience in a development role, uh, really learning and having the opportunity to make mistakes with somebody else's money, I think you're putting yourself at a pretty big disadvantage in respects to being able to start off, uh, on the ground running uh, at a very fast rate. And that, that's the reason why we're in the position that we're in. Uh, education was an important part of it, but uh, having that experience uh, and learning from a really, really good group uh, set us up for success. That, I can't stress that enough. Wonderful. Um, well, gentlemen, thank you both for taking the time to speak with me. I really appreciate it. Uh, best of luck in the rest of the year and uh, uh, in your next ventures. Yeah, thank you so much. We really appreciate the time. Yeah, thank you very much. That was another episode of the Real Perspectives podcast, and we thank you for taking the time to listen to it. Conversations like these help us comprehend our evolving industry better and hopefully provide a perspective that helps you understand the dynamics of commercial real estate. If you like this episode, please subscribe to our show and tell your colleagues about it. That is the best way to spread the news and help us remain relevant across the industry. Cheers. Cheers.